sometimes it actually is all in our head, and the doctor or doctors have just not been able to determine the root cause. Fortunately, there are some doctors who are investigating what is actually happening in the brain using SPECT scans for brain imaging. Dr. Ebony Cornish is an integrative functional medicine physician who has been treating patients with tick-borne illnesses for over a decade. She uses a systems-based approach and is passionate about helping patients by getting to the root cause of their symptoms. Dr. Cornish works with an amazing team at the Amen Clinic. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Cornish. Thank you for having me. How did you get involved in treating patients with tick-borne illnesses? Um, actually, it was interesting because I found out about it um, by searching Craigslist. I was actually looking for furniture and I saw a job opportunity said, that said doctors that think outside of the box. And at that time, I was in a regular family practice and I was really bored. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds like a great opportunity. But I was not familiar with chronic Lyme disease or functional medicine at that time. Um, but I'll never forget my first Lyme patient that I think most likely suffered from chronic Lyme. And I met them in, in med school. I was in med school in Rhode Island at Brown, which I think is probably one of the tick capitals, capitals of the world. And um, he kept, he was a landscaper. He presented with the EM rash and which is traditional um, erythema migrans. And we gave him doxycycline. We gave him the traditional doxycycline one dose. And then I remember about two weeks later, that same patient presented again and said, look, I'm still having fevers. I'm still having joint pain. Um, can you please give me more antibiotics? We said, sure, you know. And then the third time he came back, which was weeks later, and he still had similar symptoms, my attending at that time said, oh yeah, he's drug seeking. And I thought to myself, who in the world drug seeks antibiotics? <laughs> so from then on, um, you know, when I joined that practice, and I was exposed to chronic Lyme, I was like, yes, that was that patient I saw years ago. And then I joined the board of International Lyme and Associated Diseases Educational Foundation. That was the first board I joined, um, really getting interested in training other doctors and working with the physician's training program. And then over the past year, I've transitioned to our our larger board called the society, the ILADS um, society board member. And it's no turning back. I love this opportunity. I love treating patients with chronic illnesses. Um, and yeah, that's how I ended and started <laughs> into this field. No turning back. I love it. <laughs> what are SPECT scans and how do they differ from MRI or CT scans if people aren't familiar with them? Yeah, so it's like when you compare it to an MRI, or a CT scan, it's completely different technology. So when you're doing a, specs, a CT or an MRI, you're looking more at the function, at anatomy. And when you do spec scanning, 
you're looking at blood flow and more activity of the brain. So that's that's the difference with those techniques. It's the SPECT imaging is really, it's called single photon emission computer tomography. And as I stated, it looks at brain blood flow and the activity of the brain. So it tells us what areas of the brain work well, what areas do not work hard enough, and then which areas are working too hard. Now, I've seen some of the images of different uh, SPECT scans of healthy brains and then um, for other people that may, where their brain may look sort of more toxic. And they really do look like very different images, even for someone who doesn't know what they're looking at. <laughs> yeah, when I, um, years ago, before I understood SPEC imaging, I called them holes. I was like, do those mm-hmm. people have holes in their brain? Right. And then afterwards I learned, I said, no, it's more or less the activity and the function of the brain. And so when you are comparing those toxic brain scans, it's not anatomy. It's more that these patients have decreased blood flow, decreased activity in those areas, which is induced by toxin exposure, head injury. I see, we see abnormalities, Alzheimer's, um, as well as Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And what role do spec scans play in the management of tick-borne illnesses? So it do, the spec scan tells us what questions to ask. So it's not as if you can look at a spec scan and say, hey, this person has Lyme disease. When you look at that spec scan, you look for something called inflammation, all right? And early on, it's called scattered increased activity. So it's not as active symmetrically, but it's scattered. And then later, the scan looks more what we call scalloped, where there's changes in blood flow, toxic, or damaged. And so what we find is that when we have those patterns, when the scan looks like more scalloped, decreased blood flow, Um, And you can obviously tell when you compare it to a normal brain that there is some sort of inflammation. And so then it requires that you do a differential diagnosis. Well, what are the common causes of brain inflammation? So based on your not only imaging, but your physical examination and history taking, you can come up with a great differential diagnosis and abnormal toxic scans with scalloping, they could be caused by all toxins from mold to Mm -hmm. Lyme, co-infections. But when we're talking about the Lyme patients themselves, it's typically those that are associated with those disease, Lyme disease, neurological Lyme disease presentation. And then, so that's how you can tell. You can't really look at a scan and say, hey, that's a Lyme scan. Mm-hmm. You'll say that's a toxic scan. Right. Okay. And then do you see changes in spec scans several months after treatment? 
Yes, you can actually see um, increase, decreased activity in certain areas of the brain, specifically the basal ganglia, which is that area that's responsible for, you know, excitement, executive functioning, and also the frontal area, which gives us that executive functioning, those decision-making abilities. So you'll see those changes. And another change you might know is when there's a lot of activity in the brain. And I've seen those changes when patients are having what you call a die-off reaction, a Herxheimer reaction, whereby the, the underlying infection is being treated, but at the same time, they're having a toxic reaction to the treatment of those organisms. And that was what causes a lot of blood flow, a lot of activity. And you can really compare both a pre-treated brain scan with someone who's having that toxic reaction versus someone who is having um, worse function of the brain. But you always hope that it improves. And that's another thing you can you can do. I've looked at spec studies um, that are look at most imaging for tick-borne infections, and you will definitely see changes because the first pattern, it may be scalloping, toxic appearing, and then afterwards, you know, we'll see more of a calm, symmetric um, brain activity, which I think is great when you have that before and after. Yeah. How do uh, how does brain imaging help patients and their families understand the illness that they're experiencing? So it gives them not only validation, but support. So, for example, um, chronic Lyme, neurological Lyme, patients may present with neurological neurological conditions. May that be Alzheimer's or dementia presentations psychiatric presentations, anxiety, depression, and even psychosis in some cases when you have that chronic Lyme disease. And a lot of my patients get dismissed by traditional medicine and even by their family members. They're diagnosed as just a psychiatric patient or, you know, um, malingering or, you know, all these different diagnoses that you provide to patients when you don't know the root cause of Mm -hmm. their illness. So when you're looking at spec scanning and you see these abnormalities, abnormalities, you see this area called the basal ganglia, which blends feeling and movement, controls the body, involved with motivation. And when it's hyperactive can cause symptoms and symptoms in keeping with that fight or flight response because it the deep limbic system kind of sets that emotional tone. So they're like, wait, wait a minute, there's something organic here. And like I said, it makes parents and patients and family members feel more supported and they realize, wait, it's in my head but it's not all in my head. Mm -hmm, Especially when you compare those spec scans of patients who have Lyme disease to a healthy 
active brain scan. And it's like miraculous, like the mm-hmm. support that changes overnight. Oh, that's amazing. Now, you mentioned the deep lim- limbic system. What's the relationship between the deep limbic system, mast cells, and histamines? So as I alluded to earlier, the deep limbic system is that area of the brain that integrates gait sensory information, sets your emotional tone, changes your memories, your sense of smell. It also is that area that activates the autonomic nervous system and patients can be in that hyperactive fight or flight response. However, mast cells are found there. So mast cells are cells that produce histamine. And what we know and understand is when you start to have this mast cell activation, the patient releases histamine and over 50 other different chemicals. And this person might present with anxiety, insomnia, multiple chemical sensitivity. They might present to your office with changes in blood pressure from lying to standing, which is something we call autonomic dysfunction and and, and allergies and sensitivities. Um, And you're like, wait a minute, that's caused by a mast cell activation. And when you look at the brain scans as a physician, it's so rewarding because you not only understand the physiology of that disease complex, but you have anatomy and that change in blood flow and activity that supports it. Now, I've heard you mention uh, cortisol, the term cortisol steel. What, what is that? Or limbic steel phenomena? Oh, yes. That's one <laughs> of my favorite, favorite topics to discuss with patients. Because when your body is producing cortisol, which is your stress hormone, it requires a lot of your energy and your focus because the body's like, yes, we're stressing that person out. We're producing more stress hormone. And over time, you'll start hearing people complain of this kind of wired but tired response because that stress hormone the cortisol becomes too high. And if your body is only focusing on stress, it has the inability to focus on healing. So what will happen is that you have so much of this stress hormone being produced that leads to organs like the adrenals being impacted that your body loses steam and then it can't function on things like healing other systems like the thyroid or regulating your menstrual or sex hormone production. It won't have any energy to help you with your cognition because all your body is saying is, yes, let us stress out. (laughs) So that's kind of what we call that cortisol steel. Oh, thank you. 
appreciate that explanation. Uh, what What is the Cunningham panel and how do you use it to test and monitor patients? So the Cunningham panel, and I'm glad you brought this question up because it's one of my favorite tests to use when I'm treating Lyme disease, I'm sorry, PANDAS, which is called Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep Throat. And you can also have the same panel used to diagnose people who have just pediatric autoimmune, meaning your immune system is attacking itself, neuropsychiatric syndromes, associated with numerous other bacteria. That's where chronic Lyme disease, co-infections, viruses, all of those things that can make your brain so inflamed that you begin to create what we call antibodies that attack your brain cells. So when you have this panel, you are able to determine because they've done such a brilliant job of determining which antibodies can be associated with mood or dopamine problems, which antibodies can be associated with OCD. And also they have this one marker called the CAM kinase 2. And that marker is the one that when you see abnormal, usually indicates that there is some sort of a current active infection that's triggering your patient's symptoms. And it's fascinating because I'll have a lot of patients where I find I'm treating them that might have neuropsychiatric symptoms and I'm treating them, I might see things like mood swings, movement disorders, tics, obsession and compulsion, brain fog. And what the Cunningham panel does is it determines and it will tell you, well, what autoantibody does this person have? Mm. And then when you get involved into the CAM autoantibody, that's when you're, when you see that present, it's like, aha, this person is having that sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight behavior associated with immune modulation of some kind by infections. We first, like I said earlier, thought just a strep, but now we know they can be associated with numerous other infections as well. And that's when I use that, when I'm not only explaining to patients that, look, your psychiatric symptoms, your cognitive impairment may be due to an autoimmune process. And so that's when we get those results. The higher the CAM is, that indicates active infection, and you can do pre- and post Cunningham panels. So pre meaning before treatment, Mm -hmm. post meaning after treatment with the hope that those autoantibodies that have been created 
after treatment are improved. Mm-hmm. So I love it. I love that test. Oh, thank you. Now, in our podcast, we've learned from some scientists about astrocytes and the glial lymphatic system and their role in clearing toxins from the brain. In your practice, what have you found most useful in clearing toxins from the brain? I've seen quite a few things. So as it relates to just treatment options, um, I find myself using more IV detoxification methods that are Mm evidence-based. May that be glutathione, which is what we call a free radical scavenger. And I explain it to patients as something that goes around the body like Pac-Man and clears all those toxins by helping the liver to achieve that goal. You can also use B vitamins that allow the body to help clear toxins. And then I've found that you can do those things manually as well by using something called cranial cervical manipulation. So you can have cranial cervical syndrome due to complications from chronic infections, head trauma, mold and mold toxicity, and post-concussion syndrome. And what it leads to is misalignment of this critical junction at the cranial skull base and what you call a cervical axis, which is, you know, bones in your neck and other neck cervical vertebrae. And as a result, it prevents that body's lymphatic function and can affect your cerebral blood flow, the CSF. Oh, that's so fascinating. (laughs) So when patients have that manipulation and it's called atlas orthogonal manipulation, it fixes that area and allows for the patients, the brain to be able to release those toxins better. So that's a fascinating way and something I found very, Mm -hmm. very helpful with my patients. Wow. Uh, have you seen changes in patients in their spec scans who uh, patients who've participated in the dynamic neural retraining system? Oh, of course. So as I alluded to earlier, the not only the mast cells are impacted by the limbic system because that's where they reside, but patients who have those neurological, manifestations of Lyme disease also have more activity, more brain flow, more function in that limbic system. So when patients go through programs like DNRS, which is one of their major goals is to calm that limbic system, calm that fight or flight response, which is one of the ways it improves mast cell activity patients who have cardiovascular impact, like what I mentioned earlier, that change in blood pressure from lying to standing called autonomic dysfunction and just multiple chemical sensitivities and anxiety because it calms that limbic system activity down. And so I find a lot of patients, first I'll get their brain scan, it'll look toxic, 
They'll have increased activity in the basal ganglia and the limbic, deep limbic system. And then after they do those programs, it calms down Hmm. and you see less activity. Fascinating. What is toxoplasmin? Are you seeing that in your patients? So toxoplasma is the country, even this is even by um, the Center for Disease Control. It's an infection that's caused by a single cell parasite called toxoplasma gondii. And it's, it's found all around the world. And what I find is a lot of doctors don't screen for it. But this parasite can persist for long, very long periods of time in your body. Often people that are affected by it are fine. They have very few symptoms because their immune system is strong. And that, hold true, that holds true for a lot of com- common chronic conditions. Your immune cell cells, your immune system is strong, so you're fine. However, when your immune system is attacked or compromised, toxoplasma infection can cause serious health problems. It's one of the infections that pregnant women are screened for. Patients who have compromised immunity are screened for, and it's can also be found not only from pigs, our very, very common vector, sources like cat litter boxes, that can transmit toxoplasma. And then we have other sources that have shown that it can be tick-borne as well. So we know it's food-borne, poor hygiene, cat litter boxes, contaminated soil, and also ticks. So one of the many problems with toxoplasma is its impact on the central nervous system. So studies have shown that patients who have this parasite also suffer from things like schizophrenia or psychoses. And when you treat a patient for the parasite, surprisingly enough, those neurological symptoms also improve. So it's something that I think all Lyme patients or doctors should be screening for. It you can test for chronic toxoplasma, which is immunoglobulin G, or you can look for the importance of newer more active toxoplasma, immunoglobulin M, IgG, and IgM. And the funny thing is, as we were trained in school, IgG, oh, that's chronic. That's most likely inactive, but not in toxo, just like Mm -hmm. with most tick-borne vectors. The literature shows that this parasite, even if you only have uh, immunoglobulin that's positive IgG, the more chronic one, it's still active. It can still persist and patients still need to be treated. And what I find fascinating is that for my patients who have toxoplasma antibodies, you can track it. They go down as a person's getting better. They go up as a patient's getting worse. So that's one of the few 
diseases that we have, infectious diseases that we have, that we can monitor. And that val those values correlate, typically correlate with their clinical presentation. Thank you for that. Is there any emerging research that you're excited about? Oh, I'm always excited about research. <laughs> <laughs> but um, some of the recent, more recent papers that have like blown my mind um, are papers out of a physician, Dr. Zhang. He wrote a patient, a paper on persistent Lyme disease, showing that Borrelia burgdorferi has the ability to become a persistent organism even after treatment, which I thought, finally, we have a paper <laughs> that shows that. And then we have others that are more integrative. So the one that completely changed how I treated a tick-borne infection called Bartonella, which is a tick-borne organism associated most of the time with cognitive impairment and neurological imbalances is something called methylene blue. And methylene blue, it's wonderful because all it is is a dye. You can get it in a liposomal form. They traditionally used to use it for chronic urinary infection, um, but it's also really works really well with antimicrobials such as Zithromax, Rifampin, Ciprofloxacin, and Clotrimazole at treating persistent Bartonella. And I find great, great results, you know, after I read that paper, because in, in Lyme, we're, we don't know everything, right? Mm -hmm, right. We're always expanding our fund of knowledge. I'm like, okay, this will work for those tougher cases. And it's been miraculous. And I don't use that term lightly with the positive um, outcomes that I've seen among my patient populations who have persistent Bartonella. I've also found it helpful with my patients who suffer from that disorder we mentioned earlier, which is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with strep or other infections. It's promising uh, because of its ability to treat chronic stationary phase Lyme disease and Bartonella. And we know that both of those organisms can contribute to pans and pandas. So I, I, it blows my mind. So those <laughs> papers, and then there were other papers um, published last year. And I'm sorry, I forget the author. I'm sorry. But they showed that um, herbals, plant break herbals, like cryptolepis, and Japanese knotweed were more superior than antibiotics at the treatment of chronic Borrelia. And that also blew me away. I said, oh, wait, okay, this is a game changer. And then ILADS, we had a paper where we published on chronic Lyme disease and proving that 
there is that myth out there that, oh yeah, a short course of treatment is sufficient, but the paper referred to those persisters, those patients who after treatment are still symptomatic. And it provided the benefit or the explanation of why persistent treatment can be necessary in some of those more challenging patients. So I know that there is more research in all of those different areas. I know there's more research coming out about persisters of Borrelia. So I'm really excited about where we will be in 10 years um, as it relates to the evidence-based approach at the treatment of these chronic conditions. Oh, most definitely. Well, I really want to thank you, Dr. Cornish, for sharing your time and your expertise with us today. And mostly I want to thank you for being a doctor who thinks outside of the box and stepping into this area of learning. Oh, things you can find out when you're searching for (laughs) furniture on Craigslist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, thank you for this opportunity um, for your listeners. I do encourage doctors, chiropractors, nurse practitioners, all of the above, all of the health um, practitioners to really consider some of these chronic infections on your differential diagnosis when you're treating a patient who has all these nebulous symptoms um, and they present to your to your office. Don't forget about chronic infections on your differential diagnosis. Oh, thank you, Dr. Cornish, and have fun at the ILADS conference in Florida this year. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for this opportunity. And that's a wrap on another fabulous interview. I loved learning about how spec scans show improvement after treatment and damage is not permanent. Remember everyone, stay safe in the outdoors.